and welcome to Building Voices, a podcast focused on conversations with people in the know on topical issues impacting disputes resolution and management in the construction industry. My name is Frances Gordon-Weeks and I'm an associate here in the London office of the Ice Disputes team at CMS. So, on to today's guest. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Aidan Steensma of Council and someone who heads up the training and knowledge work for the Ice Disputes team. The topic of today's podcast considers the recent TCC judgment of Westminster Council versus Sports and Leisure Management Limited. So let's hear more about the dispute in question. Aidan, I understand this case concerns the impact of the pandemic restrictions on change of law clauses. I see that the defendant managed a leisure facility and had entered into a contract with a local authority, whereby the defendant was to pay the local authority a management fee. Please can you tell us more about the background to this matter? Certainly. Thanks, Francis. Um, yes, as, as you said, it was a 10-year contract for um, the particular provider who sports and leisure management, and I'll call SLM for short. Um, they were to pay the council a fee for the right to manage these buildings, and in return, they were allowed to keep the income from the running of, of the facilities. And uh, as we all know, facilities such as these were locked down during the pandemic, um, and that caused a significant loss of income for SLM. The restrictions amounted to what's called a specific change of law under the contract. Uh, that's opposed to general changes of law, which uh, apply sort of generally um, to, to everyone and everywhere. Those were to be borne by SLM, as is quite common in these sorts of agreements. Uh, the specific change of law, though, um, was a bit more ambiguous as to how it would be treated. It was dealt with by a clause in the contract, clause 39.5.2, uh, and I'll, I'll read it out because it's key to the decision. It provided that any specific changes in law or discriminatory changes in law shall be put into effect as provided in clause 37 and 38, as if the authority had issued an authority notice of change and any changes to the management fee, or if applicable and agreed by the authority, a capital payment shall be reasonably agreed between the parties. So essentially, um, the parties have taken a shortcut and said uh, specific changes of law are going to be dealt with um, under clause 37, which was the clause which deals with notices of change. Uh, for example, if the authority wanted to uh, change the, the services that were provided or, or the way in which the services were managed. Now, both parties had agreed that the change provision under Clause 36 was supposed to operate so that SLM um, was uh, kept whole or, or, or in a cost-neutral fashion, to put it another way, so that SLM didn't, um, didn't suffer as a result of any changes ordered by the authority. Um, and, and that was well understood and accepted by the court. The difficulty, though, arised as to how uh, specific changes in law were to be uh, dealt with. SLM, as you'd expect, argued that they should be kept um, whole in relation to those changes as well, and that it should also be um, managed on a cost-neutral basis. And the authority uh, suggested the, the opposite, um, that these were to be borne by SLM. And so the matter came before the court as to what exactly did this clause mean that tied specific changes of law into the general change control procedures of the contract? Thanks, Aidan. This seems like an interesting case, specifically in the context of the pandemic. So can you let me know more about what the court decided? 
the court, um, as I said, it accepted that under the change control provision, provision clause 37, uh, that that provided for a cost neutral type of position. Um, but it's, it, it declined to carry that principle directly across to specific changes in law. It saw a fundamental distinction between changes that were uh, directed by the authority and specific changes of law, which uh, come from outside, if you like, and were unforeseeable and neither party had expected. The court couldn't see how you could apply the same commercial uh, foundation for dealing with one when you were dealing with the other. The court then uh, made a distinction between the process of the change control procedure and its outcome. And uh, I'll quote the judgment here. In the court's view, the most natural reading of the language used in its factual context is that the cross-reference to clause 37 in clause 39.52 imports the process but not the outcome of the authority notice of change procedure. I think the incorporation of that process means that it must be followed as far as possible apart from the possibility of withdrawal, but that the contract takes a neutral stance as to what the financial consequences of following it should be. That doesn't really take the matter much further as to what the financial consequences would be. So what then was the outcome uh, for the parties? Well, in the court's view, uh, a general principle of reasonableness could come to the rescue and give effect to the clause. The court noted that whilst it had rejected the proposition that the contractor should be no worse off, that didn't mean that there was no principle which could help the parties. And the court found that in dispute resolution proceedings, an arbitrator would be able to have resort to a general principle of reasonableness to assist him or her in working out exactly what the financial implications should be. But as the court made clear, uh, neither of the parties to extreme positions uh, were necessarily correct i.e. Uh, that the contract is no worse off or that it bears all of the losses from the specific change in law. So in the end, it was the familiar lawyer's resort to the concept of reasonableness. So can you tell me a little bit more about the history of the development of this issue as it has made its way through the courts? Surely this is not the first time the courts have considered this type of wording. Are there any historic cases that deal with the interpretation of changes of law clause and the meaning of the phrase reasonably agreed between the parties. I think this is where the case really um, really becomes interesting. I mean, the, the background with the pandemic is is very instructive as well, but particularly this, this formulation around what's reasonably agreed between the parties. There is uh, quite a bit of history as to those types of clauses. And in particular, they're referred to often as agreements to agree. Now, just to give a, a, a tiny bit of history, there's, um, some early case law which makes very clear that agreements to agree are invalid uh, under uh, English law. Uh, the House of Lords decision in Watford and Miles um, holds that and finds that there's no obligation to negotiate in good faith that's implied in such agreements in order to try and give them force. Subsequent cases have made clear that it doesn't matter if um, the clause says the parties will use their best endeavours to uh, agree something. In one case, the, the judge put it this way, that an undertaking to use one's best endeavours is no different from an undertaking to agree, to try to agree, or to negotiate with a view to reaching an, an agreement. All are equally uncertain and incapable of giving rise to an enforceable legal obligation. In, in a similar respect and in a construction uh, context, uh, an agreement to use reasonable endeavours uh, to agree is also void. 
a, one of the, the many multiplex and Cleveland Bridge cases deals with such an issue. There, the parties had agreed to use reasonable endeavours to agree a rescheduling of the works and to agree a price for completion of the works and to then enter into a further agreement recording the agreement contemplated by, by this clause. That was also held to be void for uncertainty on, on the same grounds. The last bit of background, which I think is uh, relevant to this case, is a, a, a more recent uh, Court of Appeal authority two years ago, uh, in, or three years ago now, in 2018, a case called Morris and Swanton Care and Community. And um, that case concerned the sale of a company which provided residential care for autistic men and women. The seller who had started the, the business was to have the option for a period of four years after completion to provide consultancy services to the company and was would be paid for doing so. That option um, then provided for uh, an extension of that period, but that was framed in these words, such further period as shall reasonably be agreed between the seller and the buyer. So here we have the same words that we used in, in our case, Westminster against SLM uh, before the Court of Appeal a few years earlier. And before the Court of Appeal, those words were uh, struck down, if you like, and held to be uncertain. The court said that as a matter of grammar, the word reasonably is an adverb uh, that modifies the verb shall be agreed uh, and not an adjective, uh, the word reasonable, to qualify um, the agreeing of the further period. Uh, so in other words, the word reasonable was qualifying how the parties were going to go about agreeing, but not qualifying the end result. Uh, so the clause didn't say that they had to agree a reasonable period, uh, but merely that they were to reasonably agree a period. Um, and, and that made all the difference on the language for the Court of Appeal. It's important to note, though, the court referred to an exception in agreement to agree cases where you look at the language and it seems like there is a real agreement to agree and and no objective standard. There's a case called BJ Aviation and Pool Aviation, 2002, which refers to an exception where, despite um, the agreement to agree language, you can infer from the agreement that the parties have an objective standard in mind. And I'll, I'll read out the relevant part of that case just to make it clear. If the court concludes that the true intention of the parties was that the matter to be agreed in the future is capable of being determined, in the absence of future agreement by some objective criteria of fairness or reasonableness, then the bargain does not fail because the parties have provided no machinery for such determination or because the machinery which they have provided breaks down. In those circumstances, the court will provide its own machinery for determining what needs to be determined. The claimant in, in, in the Morris case tried to rest uh, on that exception uh, as an alternative, but the Court of Appeal rejected that argument as well. And um, it's noted that even if the language of the clause didn't have the adverbs and the verbs mixed up and so on and, and permitted this sort of exemption to apply, the court found that it still wouldn't work because the nature of what was needed to be agreed was such that there was no objective criteria which the, uh, the court could, could reach for. In the Court of Appeals words, there was no reference point in the contract or indeed externally to justify any conclusion on any basis other than guesswork. So I, I suppose, Francis, just tying that back to to our case, it's interesting because we have the same wording here in the SLM case. It says that the 
the consequences of the change in law were to be reasonably agreed between the parties. It's the same wording as in the Morris case, and all the same points around the language would, would apply. And then looking at the alternative basis, the exception, it's also difficult, I think, to see how concept of reasonableness could uh, be used appropriately. Because on the one hand, you have, well, to begin with, you have a risk event, the change in law. And the whole argument is over who bears that risk. And on the one hand, um, the court has effectively ruled out a cost-neutral cost position, but also ruled out uh, the contractor bearing that risk. And so it's difficult there to see how reasonableness enables you to pick another position along the spectrum uh, between the two parties. Essentially, uh, certainly you would have thought it could be argued that this is simply a commercial negotiation. This is the thing that the, the parties are ought to have agreed in advance as to who will pick up a certain risk when it when it materialises. So, yeah, I, I suppose when you look at the case through that lens, there's a critique there for sure. The unfortunate thing, I think, is that the point wasn't properly argued in, in, in the SLM case. The, um, the certainty of the clause wasn't challenged as such. And so um, we, we just have the court's conclusion that, in fact, reasonableness was able to guide an arbitrator to a conclusion. Um, but I, I think it certainly um, it certainly gives food for thought as to how far you can push these these agreement to agree clauses. Great. Thanks, Aidan. And thank you for your helpful summary of cases and how that impacts on the current case that we're discussing today. So I'm interested to learn what do you think are the key kind of takeaways from this case and how will this decision impact on our construction and infrastructure clients? I think there's a few takeaways. The first one is don't make your change of law clause parasitic on other change provisions within the agreement. Uh, it's a recipe for disaster, really. You think about it properly and write down a proper risk allocation and you know all of this would have been avoided. The other uh, takeaway really is in relation to agreements to agree and how far you, you can push those. Certainly this case gives an argument to say that, that wording of this kind, the parties will reasonably agree something, may be enforceable. Uh, but I, I suppose there, there's a, a warning there that uh, the Court of Appeals decision in that other case I mentioned may make that a difficult path. So I suppose this case is probably really on the borderline of, of what might be enforceable in terms of agreements to agree. If you want to use an agreement to agree, and, and sometimes it's a very handy tool in order to break deadlock, I think the key thing is the context of what you're talking about. The agreement in Morris, for example, about such further period of consultancy as may be agreed is, is so imprecise. Whereas if you're talking about parties will agree on a particular price for a further term of the agreement. Well, you're going to have objective criteria you can fall back on, so you're going to be more comfortable there. So the context in agreement to agree is very important, I think. And um, I, I suppose generally we're probably going to be seeing more of this type of case as the pandemic cases roll through adjudications and, and through court proceedings. I think this is probably the first of, of many of these types of cases. Great, thanks, Aidan. Seems like the context for the agreement to agree clause is something clients um, and lawyers are likely to be aware of. So many thanks for joining me today and thank you for all your detailed technical knowledge um, and information on the case. It's been very helpful. We look forward to joining everyone next time to discuss further topical issues that impact on the construction and infrastructure industries. Many thanks. <laughs>